handsome six foot five <laughs> child, but I'm too humble to mention him. But, uh, but it's great to see you, like Art said, on these big holiday weekends. We never know who we're going to see. But I'm really glad you came today because if we can get the feed correctly, are we good with the feed back there? We're good to go. We have a very special guest on live feed today. Matter of fact, frankly, from the heavenly realms this morning, we have the angel Gabriel <laughs> on our screen. Gabriel, thanks for joining us at First Leesburg. Hey, uh, Gabriel, I noticed that in some of my study recently uh, in Hebrew that your name means God's hero. Uh, that's great. What's it like to have a name? Hey, well, good. As long as we have you here, uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. What would you say that our people might know you best for? Well, I mean, I would say that I'm probably best known for the story of the Man King. You know, I have a great opportunity to share the narrative and the legend about my Lord and Caesar. Another thing that I'm not as widely known for is that I'm the first angel mentioned by name in the Bible. Wait a second. Are you saying you're the genius behind angel food cake? As a matter of fact. <laughs> huh. Wow. Well, listen, I didn't know that. The reason we wanted to interview today is because, unbeknownst to many, you show up in the book of Daniel. Your first appearance was last week in chapter 8. Tell us a little bit about that your work in the book of Daniel. Da uh, Gabriel, this morning, if you would. Please. You know, today, as we're looking at Daniel 9, you show up again in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Tell us a little bit about uh, your role in that particular prophecy. Gabriel, if you would. Well, hey, thanks so much for being with us today. Before you go, tell us uh, what's next for you, uh, Gabriel, if you would. Well, of course, I'll continue doing all my regular annual responsibilities, but, you know, I'm going to continue to go down the food route, and one of the things I did try, another thing to look out for the Lord, and it's a food thing. Thanks so much for being with us today, Gabriel. It's been, we really appreciate it. All right, let's hear it for Gabriel. Thank you so much uh, for being with us on that live celestial feed. Now, 
But in truth, uh, it does surprise one to be reading along in the book of Daniel and you find the same angel that we know from, from being the messenger to Mary and to Joseph in the nativity story also has an interesting role in the prophetic books we're looking at in the book of Daniel. I'm going to read the entire prophecy from 20 to 27 today, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking it together because what this story, what this portion is really about is about understanding God's prophetic centerpiece. <laughs> what God is what, what God really intended to reveal himself as he spoke of things long ago, it's really the, the apex, the high point of it all. And we want to be men and women that are in tune with what God's centerpiece of his plan is all about. Now last week we looked at 1 through 19 as we talked about praying from the heart. And today Daniel continues uh, that prayer, so to speak, in verse 20, where it says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making requests to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. By the way, that this reference to where it says in swift flight is, is the reason why we assume and think that angels fly and have that sort of ability. So it comes from this inference in verse 21. In 22, it says, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench built in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for, the, for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and an offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, this uh, beautiful text is also probably one that causes our head to sort of be scratched a little bit because there's some complexity, not only in the language, but for us to sort of piece it together. But as we look into it, we are honored to note the centerpiece of God's plan. And I sort of want to lay out, first of all, under number one, and note uh, some of the facts of God's plan. Number one is if we seek to, to be understanding the details of God's plan, the first thing I'd like us to note this morning is A, under number one on your outline, it says this, the 70 weeks are likely a reference to a historical 490-year 
period. Now, sometimes in my outline in the book of Daniel, you may have noticed the word likely. And you're going, you know, you don't sound very confident on some of this. Well, you know, in some of the things I teach, you will never find the word likely because we know what the word says. There's no dispute. This is clear. Part of the reason, if you were here a few weeks ago for our end times discussion where we looked at different views of how to interpret prophecy, Daniel, and revelation, and things of the like, you know that there are several different orthodox views and understanding these passages. And, and plus, in general, the apocalyptic language uh, throughout Christian history has been viewed so many different ways. I think it's best for us to say this is a, the best understanding, this is likely what it is, but also to hold it both loosely, humbly, and godwardly. So uh, my, my use of the word likely is on purpose. But it's a wise interpretation when in, in verse 24, when uh, the prophecy really is handed down from Daniel and it says 77s. Your version might say 70 weeks. They're basically seven different periods. And it is common uh, for a week in a prophetic sense to refer to a year. Obviously, there are many times in the Bible when a week refers to the same thing it does for us. How was your week? How were the last seven days? But in a prophetic sense, a week is often figurative and symbolic for a period of time. And in this particular instance, it seems to remarkably break down in a period of years. Um, th there's an interesting breakup, though, in these 70 different periods there seems to be a distinction, and it's broke up into three different ways. Uh, B, under number one, breaks that down a little bit. Uh, the 70 weeks are divided into three periods. Seven, 62, and then one. If you look at verse uh, 24, verse 24 sort of summarizes the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Then verse 25 explains... The first 69 of the weeks. And then verse 26 and 27 explains the last week or the heart of the last week. And it's divided into three different periods. You know, God has used this prophecy uh, to be an instrument to draw people to himself. I was reading about the ministry that is called Chosen People Ministries. began in 1894 uh, in Brooklyn, New York. It was originally called the American Mission to the Jews, and it was started by a rabbi, uh, first name, his first name was Leopold, and he was a rabbi, uh, committed conservative rabbi in Europe, and he was studying the book of Daniel, and when he got to the prophetic portion of Daniel, he was really coming over chapter 9, and he got to the prophecy of the 70 weeks, and what it appeared to this uh, faithful rabbi is that the wording of the text seemed to indicate that the Messiah had already come. <laughs> and so he spoke with some of his friends who were rabbis and said, Do you, have you ever wondered if the Messiah has already come? And one of them, who was probably a little bit in left field compared to his colleagues, said, I think it's possible that the Messiah has come. And then he said, I heard that the Messiah is in New York City. This is the 1890s, and most of us, if we were to be honest, if we thought the Messiah would come to earth, we wouldn't think he would show up in New York City. But anyway, this rabbi was told, 
He could be in New York City. So it wasn't an easy thing to travel from Europe to the new country in 1890. And so the story is he sold all that he had. And he moved his family, and likely on a, obviously on a boat at that period of time, and moved to New York City looking for the Messiah as he walked around the, uh, the undeveloped areas that, that compared to now, he stumbled into a Christian mission where he heard the gospel and he heard prophecy being preached and he understood as he, as he talked with believers there and as he looked at Daniel chapter 9 that this was a prophecy about the coming, the anointed one, the one known as Jesus Christ. And he became what he referred to as a completed Jew. It was a prophecy for his people. And he came to understand that Jesus indeed was the Messiah based on this powerful teaching of the 70 weeks. Now, as the breakdown continues, it describes uh, a period of seven weeks. And, and that's likely a 49-year uh, uh, period that, dis- that Daniel is describing basically right after the, the, when the captives that were in Babylon, they went back to their homeland and they rebuilt Jerusalem. That's the first period of weeks, the seven weeks. And then that period of 62 is that intertestamental period uh, between the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and the coming of the anointed one. So C explains that a little bit under number one, and that's this, the crucifixion of Christ and the destruction of of Jerusalem, which was in AD 70, likely close out the 69th week. Some of you are here and going, is there anything going to relate to my everyday life? Give me just a minute, we'll get there. (laughs) But this prophecy in verse 25 beautifully describes the, both the crucifixion of Christ and then the the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, there are different theories on how all this breaks down. How do you, if you want to, if you're a precise person and want to know about the 483 years at this point, how did it all work? And I'm not one that can, uh, can claim absolute preciseness on this. There will some that say this is exactly when the clock began ticking. This is exactly when it ended. But I I believe we have a quote from David Jeremiah uh, on the screen. Uh, Josh, if you could put that up. This is from his book called The Handwriting on the Wall. And it's interesting how he correlates the book of Nehemiah, which if you haven't read, shows how God's people began um, restoring uh, the walls and then Ezra, of course, building the temple. Let me read this for you to give a theory that he proposes on how all this works together. According to Nehemiah, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, the first 69 weeks began at a specific time, 445 B.C., and ended at a certain time and event. The 69 weeks of Daniel began with March 14th, 445 B.C., when Artaxerxes' decree, the decree to come back and rebuild, went forth. We need to remember that the weeks are counted as years, and the years had 360 days. This was built on a lunar calendar. Simple calculation of this time element is this. 69 weeks of years times 7 days in the week equals, are you following? Some of you are going, I didn't do so good in math, Pastor, but follow it here. 483 times 360 days in a year equals 
173,800 days. Now, if you take March 14th, 445 B.C., when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem went forth and add it to that number of days, you come up to April 6, A.D. 32. According to Sir Robert Anderson in his chronology, that was the day that Jesus Christ rode into the city in his triumphal entry. Now, I'm not endorsing every syllable of that paragraph you just read, but I think it's an incredibly fascinating theory. <laughs> Basically, what he's saying is that these 69 weeks were so marked out by God that it leads up precisely to Christ beginning his, the end of his earthly ministry where he was crucified. And then, of course, though the temple was rebuilt after the time of Daniel, it was once again uh, destroyed in A.D. 70, which is likely some of the events that verse 25 are pointing to. Now, verse 26 and 27 describe the last week, and there seems to be a break in the sevens. There seems to be, uh, it, it says in uh, verse 26, that the Messiah will be cut off. In other words, he is crucified, he ascends to heaven, and there, there seems to be an inference of his waiting. And so it seems as that history is paused that this last period of weeks refers to a future event. It wasn't part of the 483 chronological years. Now, Obviously, there are different perspectives from very fine people, and it's not the point to test orthodoxy and vigorously debate, but D under number one has another explanation of this fascinating prophecy. Is this D, the 70th week, is likely a, re a, ref a future reference to the Antichrist in the seven-year period of tribulation. You may have heard of that period before we get the term the period of tribulation from Matthew chapter 24 where Christ seems to be describing a period that will usher in the return of Christ and he describes it as a time of great distress or a time of great tribulation and when you take this passage and when you look at some of the sequence in the book of Revelation there seems to be in the future, in the end of history, God reserving the final 70th week, that seven-year period where, where the, it says he will confirm a covenant, and the he is likely a reference to the Antichrist making a covenant and agreement with the people of Israel. And then in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. There seems to be a... a, a view that there will be a re-initiating the sacrifice system in Jerusalem by this time in human history. And the Antichrist, this ruler that had some prototypes that we've seen in the past, but this ruler will come and he will put an end to it. He will be a very charismatic, influential person. And matter of fact, he will begin great uh, destruction of believers and especially God's chosen people and then it says on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation in other words he will stop the sacrifices will waylay the temple and destroy the 
the Jewish religion and will, of course, uh, take out believers as, to his, uh, as much as he can. And then it says, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That's a reference to the fate of the Antichrist. He doesn't have all power and, doesn't, and will not have the final word. There will be destruction for him. But these verses point to a, what I believe is likely a future reference to the seven-year period. Now, that's some of the facts, some of the understanding. But there's some principles for our life that we cannot miss from this powerful passage. I want to share with you uh, several of them this morning under two, and that's this, remembering principles from God's plan. First of all, A is this, turn your heart toward heaven regardless of your location. In verse 21 and 22, it's interesting what Daniel is doing. It says this, while I was in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen earlier in, in vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. <laughs> interesting, was there an evening sacrifice going on in Babylon where Daniel was? No. Was there an evening sacrifice going on in Jerusalem? Well, no. They, the temple had, was destroyed at that point. Why is he praying at the time of evening sacrifice? Well, that was what he was taught to do as a young boy, as a young teenager, before he was deported. Now he's in his mid-80s and it continues to call out to God and remember his sin. He's confessing his sin. He's getting right with God. And it didn't matter his location but his heart was always thinking about heaven. That's something that you and I need to remember. Regardless of our location, we are on this earth right now, but this is not our home. The scripture tells us our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter uh, if we're on vacation. It doesn't matter if we're in good old central Florida, that our heart should turn toward heaven regardless of our location b under number two is this that god is faithful to answer prayer did you notice what gabriel said to him as soon as you begin to pray an answer was given which i have come to tell you you ever felt like it's taken a while for god to answer your prayers and you're wondering if he's listening this verse is another reminder in scripture that god is faithful to answer our prayers c under number two also that god has a perfect well timed plan in verse 23 at the end of it he, he says this therefore consider the message and understand the vision in other words god's already got a well-timed plan that he's engineering our job is to trust it not to create our own plan and not to buck up against god's but to believe that he knows what he's doing and trust his orchestration of our life and of human history d another principle about god's plan is this god has the solution for our sin problem. Not just our sin problem, but the sin problem of the whole world. Look at, in verse 24, some of the description of that, that he will put an end to sin. He'll atone for wickedness. He'll finish transgression. That's what the Lord will do. This is a, a very clear reference to the work of Christ as God sent his one and only son to be the sin offering. He offered atonement and forgiveness of our sin. And this morning, if you realize that you've never gotten forgiveness for your sin you, you're carrying around the, around the burden the weight of your own sin god has the answer he has the solution for our sin problem and he was sacrificed once the scripture says to take away the sin of many people he was the 
once for all sacrifice so your sin could be fully paid for. Everyone in this room has the exact same problem. All of us are sinners separated from God, and God loves us so much and wants us to worship Him that He has provided the solution in His Son for our sin problem. Also, E, another principle to remember is that Jesus will come again and reign forever. In verse 24, these last few statements about the coming kingdom describe it seems to be the return of the one that would take away the sin problem. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, the moral teachings and the prophetic teaching of the prophets will no longer be needed. And then he will anoint the most holy. It seems to be referring to Christ will be the anointed one and reigning forever. And so Christ will come again and reign forever. I remember one time, is actually back in high school, I was reading the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, that talks about there will be a, a shout in the heavens and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And it says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. And I was driving into the school parking lot and I was thinking about one day Christ is going to return. And I saw a guy I knew that wasn't a Christian and his name was Rocky. And I went up to him and said, hey, Rocky, do you know something? He goes, what? I said, Christ is coming back. He looked at me and got his eyes real big and he goes, When? You knew I was a Christian, thought I had some inside scoop, and I, of course I didn't know the answer, but I wanted him to think, hey, Christ is coming back. Are you ready to meet him? And a, a last principle this morning for us to remember is this, that God will sustain his people until the victory is complete. You know, in this world, it seems like sometimes evil has the upper and the winning hand. And even in the darkness described in this period of the tribulation, it sounds like the last word, parts of it, belong to the Antichrist. But don't forget, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That God won't stop being faithful, being loving, being powerful and sovereign, no matter what we go through on this earth right now and in the end of time. That he is the victor and will bring in the victory. And it's our great honor to be on his winning team. This morning, as we've looked at the centerpiece for the plan of God, have you personally entered into that relationship where you've trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And if that is the case, and you have done that, are you living in light of the reality of His return with the readiness to meet Him, with a heart that is bent toward Him and things of the Lord rather than the stuff of this earth? As we consider this powerful passage and now enter into a time of response, let's take a moment and bow together before him. Living Lord, we do humble ourselves before you. And we ask that you would engineer circumstances today and draw people to your truth. Lord, there's maybe no one here like the rabbi we mentioned that's walking around town looking for the Messiah but there could be some here that are just as much looking for hope, looking for a word of truth, looking for the gift of eternal life. Would you draw them toward you this day? Lord, shore us up, shore us up with the great hope of your return and what it means in our life. Thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.